Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, Today I have pulled 11 of your questions. Um, So we'll get through all of those. Always great questions. You guys know I love your questions. So great. Um, I'm sure they'll help a lot of people. Um, That's a cool thing about these is like a lot of people will make comments um, under the questions and be like, yeah, me too, me too. And then they'll add in some of their own question to it or their own thoughts. Um, And I do my best to incorporate like all of your questions into my answer to make so that all of you, you know, got your question answered. Um, But let's just check in first. How are you? What's going on? Um, Sean and I were in Palm Springs last week and it was really nice to get out of town I, it was really, I, I, I needed the break, I think more than I realized, but I don't know about any of you, but when I, once I've had a break, then it's really difficult to come back. It's like that first day of work after you've had vacation is like, I don't know, it's just the worst. So it's been a rough week <laughs> and I don't mean to complain. Like in a lot of ways, I feel very, very fortunate and I want to make sure I, you know, I, I don't know. Do you guys have trouble with this too? It's like with all the shit that's happening in our world right now. I kind of struggle. It's like my brain goes back and forth between like, yeah, I'm having a hard time. Like this is really stressful and I'm grieving and I'm sad and I'm overwhelmed a lot. Sometimes for no reason, like yesterday, my heart just started racing, started feeling anxious, you know, like anxiety does for no good reason. Um, But then immediately I'm like, but you're so privileged, Katie. Like you're, you're lucky you can work from home and you've actually been busier than ever before. Um, and you're getting to write a book and like you can pay your bills. Like, you know, it's almost like in the same thought that I have about like, wow, I'm having a tough time. I have an automatic thought of get over yourself like other people have it worse. And I never used to have that before the COVID. It just never, I don't know. I was able to like allow myself to feel things. I don't know what the hang up is. And I've debated, I've talked about this a lot and I haven't done an update video, but I've debated just doing an update video talking about that because I don't know what it is about this time that makes it so hard to like allow ourselves to feel whatever, right? I don't know. Anyway, I don't really have any answers. Um, Just got a lot of questions. I'm I'm just kidding. Um, But I think it's just, you know, things are uncertain. It's definitely a more stressful time. It's hard to get our limbic system in our brain, which is like our fight, flight, freeze. It's kind of limbic system is like where our amygdala is housed. It's like the part of our brain responsible for stress response and, you know, quick, impulsive, safety-based thinking. Um, It's really difficult to get that part to calm down at all. Like every time I go out into the world, I I feel kind of scared a little bit. And I'm sure a lot of you do that as well. Anyway, enough rambling on my part. Um, This week's just been a little tricky for me. And I just, I don't want you, I think the reason I wanted to share it is because 
I don't want anybody to think that just because I have tools and I've been in therapy off and on for years, although I'm not in it currently and I really um, should get back into it. I was just like transitioning and I think I might just go back to my regular therapist again for a few more sessions, but I was hoping to find someone else. Um, Anyway, I just want you all to know that just because I know better or because I'm a therapist doesn't mean that I don't also struggle. And especially during this global pandemic, uh, we're all in it together. There isn't one person out in the world that doesn't understand the stress of this in one way or another. And so anyway, I just wanted to share it to hopefully help you at least understand or know that it's okay to feel how you feel. You don't have to feel happy all the time. Again, kind of like I had that uh, toxic positivity video that I put out a few weeks ago. And that's kind of what I talked about in there is like, it is okay to feel how we feel. However, you know, we don't, that doesn't mean that we should just ruminate on things because I don't, I don't like to let myself just go down a dark spiral of like, what if, and oh my God, and worry thoughts that take me nowhere. Um, Cause that doesn't help anybody. And so I can allow myself to feel this. Like yesterday I just cried for a little bit cause I was just feeling overwhelmed. And then I was like, okay, you know, we got to get, we got to do things. So that was your time to feel it for today and then come back around later. You could do it later. Um, anyway, I just want you to know that it, just because I know better doesn't mean that I don't struggle as well. It doesn't mean that I don't have bad days. Um, so wherever you're at is okay. I give you full permission to feel however you want to feel, however you need to feel. Okay, enough about me, enough about shit going on in our world. Let's get into your wonderful and amazing questions. And question number one is, hi, Katie. I was wondering how therapists decide it's time to stop therapy. Is there a point you decide that they're either fully recovered or no longer benefiting from therapy and then tell the client that they don't need to come back? I'm only a couple of weeks into therapy for an eating disorder, but I'm already scared about them telling me I don't need them anymore and I'm progressing too slowly and they give up on me. And how how would they tell me when it got to either of those points? I had to giggle just because the person's only a few weeks into therapy or a couple weeks. So let's say by the time this comes out, they've seen their therapist three times. Don't worry, they're not going to do that at all. The way um, the way we decide to stop therapy, it's actually a slower process than that. So the way, um, let's say, let's use do the first example of like when you decide that someone's fully recovered. So the way that I decide that is let's say I have a patient who is um, hasn't really had any uh, major issues lately and they're using all their tools and they're starting to feel better. I would start to talk to them about the fact that maybe they don't really need to come in as frequently. And the way that I do it is I start to what we call titrate down. So instead of seeing them every week, I would see them every other week and we would assess and see how does that feel? How are you doing? Is that, are you still improving? Are we still feeling good? Right. And then from every other week, maybe we go down to once a month, but usually at that point, I've only had one patient want to go down to once a month, but usually at that point, my patient will say, yeah, I want to take a break. And I, I do go through like a process with my patients when I'm ending therapy Um, and I, I don't even like calling it ending therapy the more I think about it, but what I do is I go through all the stuff we've worked on together. We go through all the tools that have worked for them, all the things they've overcome. We go through all of that stuff. Okay. So that they can see what we've worked on together and what we're, you know, moving through. And then I always briefly remind them of like, Hey, remember your signs and symptoms. Like if these things start happening, give me a call. You can always come back in. You can always make another appointment. So even though we're ending therapy in the structured way that it's been happening for, let's say a year, we're not like ending, like you can never come back. It's more like 
hey, I'm here, but I don't think you really need me anymore. And if you do, just give me a call kind of thing. And so that's how when people are fully recovered or kind of like, quote unquote, graduate from therapy, that's how I process that. And I would assume, and based on my colleagues and stuff, I'd assume most people are, it's pretty much the same, that there's some kind of form. It doesn't, there's no like timeline. It's not like, oh, we talk about it. And then three months later, we end. It depends on the person. I've had patients who want like a 90 day uh, kind of runway for that. I have other patients who are like, you know what? I'm feeling good. So like, I'll see you next week. And then let's just not, I think I'm going to take a break. Or I've had patients in session be like, that stuff was super helpful. And it really just fixed the problem. So um, I don't think I need to come in anymore. Everyone's different, but that I just want to give you like the ideas of options. And usually if they leave it up to me, I like to kind of titrate down just to ensure that we're taking our time with it. Um, and no one feels rushed or abandoned. Okay. Especially since I work with a lot of eating disorder um, and people with borderline personality disorder, things like that. So I want to make sure I give them time to process. And then um, the next uh, option or the next version of ending treatment with me or with another therapist would be that they're no longer benefiting from therapy. So this again is like a slow uh, process. Um, usually we'll start having conversations about like how come things haven't improved or how come the homework hasn't been something you've been able to do and um, and we'll try different things. So this will go on for a little while. Like usually, and I know this sounds like a long time, but usually if I don't feel like my patients are making any movement or any pro- like progress for like three months, I'll start to have this conversation about like, hey, you know, I've noticed things aren't really getting better. And, um, you know, and I'm wondering if maybe we need to try different types of therapy or maybe we need to get like an adjunctive treatment, meaning like continue seeing me, but maybe we need to get a dietitian on board or maybe we need you to try EMDR or um, maybe I'm not the right fit, you know, and we need to look at something else. And so we'll start looking at it into other options and talking about it. But that would be, you know, three months at least of like not making any progress. Um, and everyone's going to be different on this, but this is just my personal uh, stance and the way that I operate. And I just can't see anybody because you're waiting for a pattern right? Like we all have a couple of bad weeks, right? But like three months is definitely a pattern. Um, but maybe even two months, some people might consider uh, having that conversation. And then like, uh, I'll have conversations with my patients about like their uh, investment in therapy. Like, are they lying to me? Cause that happens all the time. Um, are they not even trying the homework? Are they showing up late or canceling appointments or are they, um, there's like, you know, those defense mechanisms, that resistance in there. And I'll try to address it head on and, um, and ask them if they, you know, like where this is coming from. And and sometimes there's a very honest reason. Like one of my patients, her car broke down. And so she had to take a bus and that made things, it made it harder for her to get to me. And she'd let me know. So I wouldn't have assumed, I don't just assume showing up late or having to cancel always means this. I'm just giving you some examples of like patterns that we see, um, without any real reason behind it other than resistance to therapy. And so I'd have a conversation and then we'd look into like that adjunctive treatment maybe. Um, And at that point I'd be honest and say like, I'm curious, you know, I might not be a a good fit for you. Um, Would you be open to trying to see someone else? And sometimes patients are like, yeah, you know, I just don't feel like things are moving forward and I don't really know why. Um, Or if they're, they're like doing all the work and it's still not getting better. I'm like, Hey, I don't think I'm a good fit. I think we need to get you into attachment based treatment or like EMDR or something. Um, a trauma specialist, something uh, more, uh, more specialized. Um, and then 
sometimes if, if a patient's resistant to that, but they're not getting any better, um, then I'll give them like a 90 day window. I'll be like, Hey, okay. So in three months we'll assess again. And at that point, if we don't feel that things are continuing to get better, I'm, I'm We're going to have to stop seeing each other for a while because this isn't really working. And I've had patients freak out, uh, scream at me and shout. I've had patients cry about it. I've had patients be like, you know, actually, let's just try someone else. You know, I've had all across the board of responses, non-response to over intense and crazy response um, to that. Um, and that's all fine. Um, but it's just kind of a process. And I, I guess there's no, there's no like real answer like, oh, after six months or after a month or, but it's more about like a pattern. And in therapy as therapists or as mental health professionals as a whole, we're always looking for patterns. And so if there's a pattern of things not going well, or you not benefiting or not even trying or lying, we're going to bring that up. We're going to talk about it. And then if we think it has something to do with our relationship, we're going to talk about that. If we think it has something to do with uh, my scope of practice, meaning like, what am I able to do? Like, I'm not, I don't do EMDR. I'm not trained in EMDR. Um, so if I thought that was something that you could benefit from, I would refer you out. Or if you need to see someone like three times a week, I'm not even in my office three times a week. So then I would refer you to someone who has a, a more open schedule. Um, especially when I was traveling a lot for work, it got very difficult for me to see my patients like regularly. And so some of my higher needs patients, I had to refer them out to someone else just because it wasn't ethical for me to keep, uh, like quote unquote, seeing them when I'm not even available. Like I'm not even in town. Um, now things are different with COVID, but back last year I had to do, um, that with two of my patients and it was, it was difficult. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of different reasons that we would, um, refer you out or, you know, stop seeing someone, but the real, okay, so that's the answer. But the real thing that comes up for me when I read this question is attachment. Because you've only been seeing your therapist a couple of weeks and you're already scared of them telling you that you don't need them anymore. Um, and I would assume there's something in your past trauma in your childhood, something about uh, having someone care for you and being a caregiver. You're worried they're going to leave you. It could be a little bit of BPD, meaning borderline personality disorder. It could be uh, trauma-based, could be both those things. Um, but I would let your therapist know about this concern and this worry and that this, like how this affects you. And I would assume this isn't the only time this has happened. I'd assume we've had some attachment to maybe like uh, teachers or uh, people, you know, maybe a coach or someone in our life when we're growing up, uh, maybe a nanny or a babysitter. We probably grew very attached to people and were worried that they were going to leave or tell us that they weren't coming back or any of those things. Um, we would really stress about that. And so that's really what I would bring up in therapy. Um, and those are kind of the ways that uh, termination and referrals and all that stuff kind of work. And hopefully that, you know, answered the question and helps any of you out there who are concerned. I also have a video. Um, I think it's called I Can't See You Anymore, um, which got people all riled up. And I did not anticipate that. Um when I was creating the title, but I think that's what it's called. And then there's also like the five to do's when ending therapy. And I talk about like some things that are helpful to do with it when you're like titrating down and ending your sessions. Um, so if you're looking for that information, you can check those out on my main channel. Okay. Let's get some water, maybe some coffee and let's answer question number two, but hopefully that kind of helps because so often I think people, there's so many things we don't know about therapy, right? What do therapists do? What are they supposed to say? When will they terminate? I think a lot of people assume that the therapist, you'll come into session and all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, when this is our last session, uh, no. If anybody does that, you guys, that is actually very unethical. Um, and meaning uh, like ethics versus legal. Hold on. 
I'm gonna need more coffee before I answer that. But um, so legal stuff is when it's technically there are laws against the thing happening. Okay. Meaning it is illegal for me to tell someone else about your confidential therapeutic information unless you have told me it's okay or I have a court order. Okay. So that's legal. Ethical is when it's like, it's kind of a gray area, but it's really like, that's not emotionally supportive or helpful for a patient. And, you know, um, we shouldn't do that. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to lose your license. However, you can do something that's so egregious and so unethical that you can, um, I, I think it's called a strike maybe, but it's like a complaint can be filed and it can go against your license. And if you get enough complaints, you can lose your license. So ethics are equally as important. And when it comes to proper termination, you cannot just stop seeing someone. Like there's a lot of uh, ethical things we learn in school. I don't even want to, I don't even know what to call them, but it's not like a rule, but it's like proper ethics are giving a patient time to titrate down or to slowly terminate. Um, Usually it's like 30 days, some 60 days, and at maximum is like 90 days. Um, And that's honestly just, it's just good practice. So don't think that anybody, no therapist is going to say, I can't, I just can't see you anymore. Unless you threaten them. Like I had a patient years and years ago who like threatened me and I still ended up seeing her for a little while to try to get her over to someone because I knew it was just her lashing out, but I was actually scared. So I called my lawyer and, um, and she was like, you don't have to see her anymore ever if you don't want to. Um, so there are th- reasons, but that's not what you're talking about. Therapists are not just going to cancel on you. So don't worry. Okay. Okay. Question number two, Katie, do you get tired of hearing the quote unquote same stories and issues over and over again? I imagine it feels almost like solving and answering a certain type of math question over and over again, which at least I'm guessing from my experience can get pretty annoying and boring. That's not really true. Did you ever start dreading it? Also, how many clients do you usually see in your private practice maximum before you'd feel worn out? This is an interesting question. So I don't actually get tired of hearing the same stories and issues over and over again because everyone's a little bit different. And in all honesty, the thing that's really cool about therapy is that everyone's backstories and the exact situation, uh, while the the real root of an answer or the real uh, treatment structure would be the same, the way that I'd answer it might be a little bit different. Like I'm sure you guys have heard me answer a zillion of the, you know, roughly same questions. And you'll notice that the answers are always a slightly different because it depends on what I've been reading that week. Um, it depends on the information that I get in the question. It also depends on like what I've been working sometimes with my own patients on or in my own therapy. It, it just depends on how you catch me. Right. Um, and so even, like I said, even though the main like uh, meat of the answer would be say the same, a lot of the like tools and techniques and resources I might offer could differ just because like I might've just, just found out about something. Right. Um, or it might be front of mind cause I just made a video about it or I don't know. Um, and so I don't really, I don't, I haven't ever started, I haven't ever dreaded, uh, therapy or doing what I do on YouTube. I have felt burnt out, but that's my own, like not to say oh, that's my own fault, but it is. It's because I'm not taking breaks when I need to. And like, um, like even recently, because I'm writing my book and I have three chapters left, I'm reaching that point where I'm just like kind of exhausted. And so I'm debating if I take like a couple of weeks off from any video creation. 
you know, I have tons of videos in the past. You guys can go back and watch those and listen to those. It'll be okay. I'll be, I'll be back. Um, so I'm debating on doing that just because I've been feeling overwhelmed. And if I don't practice self-care, how can I tell you to practice self-care? Right? So I don't dread it. I just have to, it's a lot of energy out. And with quarantine, I've found it increasingly difficult to get the energy in because what I love to do, what fills me up is like spending time in groups with my friends and having people over, going over to friends' houses and, play, you know, swimming in the pool or having a barbecue. And like none of that has been accessible. And I just love going out to eat. Anyway, some things have been hard for me. So trying to find ways to still get my fill while not like, you know, putting myself or others in danger. It's just been tricky, um, but I'm, I'm working on it. Don't worry. That's why I went to Palm Springs last week. Um, and if any of you are concerned, we did not stay in a hotel um, or anything like that. I think those are too high touch for Sean and I. It's like, I, we need to have distance from people. We rented a home on Airbnb um, and had our own pool and had no touch anything. We had deliveries and stuff and we just like wiped everything down, wore our masks. We were very, very conscientious and uh, careful. Um, okay. And then it says also, how many clients do you, oh, and I'll, um, just for clarity, the very, the first question I'm guessing from my experience can get pretty annoying and boring. No, I don't know. People are so different. That's why it doesn't get annoying or boring. Um, every story is different and I find it's always like a new puzzle. So I actually find it very interesting. Um, and then how many clients do you usually see in your private practice max before you'd feel worn out? So if any of you don't know, I have slowly, um, well, I quit my full-time job, years and years ago, but my private practice, I used to have three full days a week. Then I went down to two full days and now I'm in two half days. Um, but I've even had patients who have like quote unquote graduated or stopped seeing me and I have not filled those slots. So I think at this point I have like six or seven patients. I'd have to look at my number, which I know you're like, how do you not know how many I have to, I have to count it out, but it's like six or seven. Um, and I may just kind of slowly let that go for now. Um, especially since Sean and I are debating moving away from here and how would I work that out anyway. Um, but how many clients do I see in my private practice max before I feel worn out? I used to see uh, seven or eight in a day, um, like a full, a full day. Right. And I would be totally pooped when I was doing my three full days. I had eight patients, um, eight, two days. And I think seven, one day. And then I had, you know, I worked in the hospitals and eating disorder treatment centers on the other days I had, if you guys don't realize therapists usually, um, most don't have full-time private practice. Some of the older uh, therapists that I have that are, you know, colleagues and part of my like journal club that I get together with, um, they do. However, I've never had a full private practice mainly because I never, I don't know. I see some patients for free. I've seen patients for really low fee. um, And I just, I use my private practice as a way, obviously to make money because I have to make money, but I want to be able to help people where I could. And so that was a way that I would do that. And then I would work at other places to, to get health insurance because that's fucking expensive. Um, and also, you know, when I was gaining hours anyway, I've always just worked at different therapists usually have a bunch of different jobs that they hold so that you aren't dependent on like one stream of income. It kind of helps us balance it out. So if we have a bunch of patients cancel, um, you know, I can still pay my bills. And I know that sounds weird to talk about it that way, but I think it's really important that we do talk about how therapy being a therapist is a career, right? Meaning it is a business. I have to pay bills and I have to live just like everybody else does. Um, and so I've, I've done my best to try to find ways to make money um, from different revenue streams so that I can leave spots open for my patients 
who maybe lose their jobs, especially now and can't afford things. Or like I've seen patients for years for like a half the amount um, that I normally charge or less. Actually, I guess it was less. Um, but anyway, I, I work with people and I've always wanted to be able to do that. And so I've never, um, I've never done only private practice. I just try to do a bunch of different things so that I can offer that. Cause I think that that is really important. Um, and so yeah, seven to eight in a day I'm pooped. I don't know if I could, I've never done that like five, six days a week. So I don't, I know a lot of people do. My friend Alexa sees some like 10 patients a day sometimes. So um, she is just, I guess she can just do it more like longer than I can and has more stamina for it. You go Alexa. Um, but that's, that's for me. And you know, everybody's a little bit different, but you kind of learn as you're training, as you're going through hours, like how many hours you can sustain focus. Because the thing for me is I don't want to have my last patient of the day get like the remnants or the crumbs in the first person of the day gets like their fair share. I want everybody to get their fair share and to feel like they um, get my full focus and attention and, and feel just as special um, and just as listened to and cared for. And so, so yeah, so that's kind of how I do it. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Being a therapist is interesting. I even had someone, and I just want to bring this up just because it's been on its front of mind. Um, I did a workshop with uh, a good friend of mine, Chelsea from the financial diet. She's wonderful. And someone had left a comment when I was sharing about it to let people know it, it, it exists. And it was like $10 a ticket, I think. And uh, this person left a comment, like you want to get paid for helping people. And I don't know why that just really struck me because yes, the answer is yes. Um, I got into my job to help people, but I also have to pay my bills. I don't know. That just came across as so, so ignorant and so judgmental and just like rude. It really pissed me off. I wanted to like block the person, but I was like, Katie, you're overreacting. Um, because I do put out a lot of free content as well. And I, I, I do find, I like resent comments like that. Um, because I do try to help. I, like I said, I don't even, uh, I never did private practice full time so that I could offer time slots for free. And I think most, uh, or for at least a I mean, I always had free and discounted. Like, so I think most people would say that you get into work like this to assist people, to help others, to be a ray of hope in a sometimes dark world. Um, and so, so anyway, yeah, I just, unfortunately we have to make a living as well. And I've, it's funny too, like even just, I think the reason that bothers me is because I also haven't raised my rates in my private practice in like three years. Um, and most people raise them every year. Um, Anyway, stuff like that just kind of gets to me. I'm just venting now. Thanks for listening. You guys are such good listeners. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Shut up, Katie. We're moving on. Okay, question number three. It says, hi, Katie. I have been struggling with becoming overly attached to female teachers and other school staff for years now. I often find myself fantasizing about experiencing a traumatic event, like being raped or experiencing a murder. I think it's because I crave their attention and care, but don't know how to get it to the level that I crave. I've watched your other videos about attachment and none of your explanations seem to fit me. I don't think I have BPD and I have a great relationship with my mother. I feel, feel ridiculous for wishing something bad would happen because I know I wouldn't really want to experience these events, but I can't help myself from doing it. What can I do about this? And do you have any other reasons why I'm becoming attached in the first place? Thanks for all that you do. Of course. So, I'm going to push back on this a little bit because having a great relationship with our mother doesn't mean that we got our needs met. And I know 
you're like, but she was great. And I've talked about this before. I want to say it's in the emotionally absent mother video. And I don't, I'm not saying this is 100% the case with you, but just hear me out. I think a lot of times when our parents fed us, clothed us, took us to school, helped us with homework, like did all the things a parent's supposed to do, we think that therefore I don't have any right or reason to struggle with attachment or uh, have really bad anxiety or feel like I was traumatized. Like in a way, if a parent looks quote unquote good on paper, therefore, you know, it, it takes away any of our reasoning or kind of validation for how we feel as adults. Okay. Or even teenagers um, as we grow up. And that's just not the case because good on paper parents doesn't mean that they gave us the emotional support that we needed. Like a parent, for instance, I'll just give you a personal example. So my dad's family, I'm closest to that side of my family, by the way. And that's really because, first of all, um, we spent more time with them, but also his, my dad's family is very uh, touchy, lovey, call. They want to be with you. They want to, my grandma would always want to watch my brother and I and like, uh, and feed us and like do things with us and spend time. And my mom's family was very, uh, her parents were older. They had her when they were much, much older than my dad's parents did. So first of all, they were older, so maybe not as active, but they also didn't really, they're not touchy people. They didn't want to hug us. They didn't, we barely really saw them, even though they didn't live far away. Um, and there was really no emotional connection there. And therefore, like my dad was always much more lovey, kissy, huggy, uh, how, you know, checking in with us than my mom. And my mom got better as as I got older, um, I think probably because of therapy and also just my dad's family became her family. I'm really sharing this because um I would estimate that like maybe my mom didn't get the emotional support that she needed, even though she had all of her needs met, like her family, you know, took care of her and she, she was fine. Obviously she got taken care of with all the things you're supposed to. She got to school, uh, good medical attention when needed. She was fed and clothed and all that. So we can say, Oh, I have a good relationship or, Oh, they treated me well and still not get what we need. Because maybe what we needed, maybe one of our, our love language, which I'll have a video coming out about this uh, soon. So stay tuned if you're wondering what love languages are. But maybe our love language is physical touch. And even though you have a great relationship with your mom, there was no physical touch or physical affection. And maybe um, your female teachers, you know, they touch your arm or back or shoulder or spend quality time with you. So often our parents are so busy working and doing all the things that parents and adults have to do. Trust me, I get it. If I had a child, I mean, there's it's more than one reason why Sean and I don't want children, but that's a huge one is like, I I don't want to make any concessions in my life to make time for a child and they need that quality time. So let's say our love language is quality time and we don't get that from our parent because they're so busy working. There's a lot of ways that that we can still have needs and still have attachment issues that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean we have to have a horrible relationship with our mom is what I'm saying or father or anything like that. There are a lot of reasons uh, that we can still have that, that hole and that, that need and still become overly attached to, you know, female teachers or other school staff. So I want you to really think about that because that's my pushback, um, is that I really believe that there is something that's missing, whether it's, um, you know, maybe you, you needed more quality time. Maybe you wanted to do more shared activities with it's all, I really think it's all about love languages, um, and not getting those emotional needs met. Um, it could even be like a, a mother 
or father telling us like, you know, buck up, like we don't cry or let's get up and do this. And like ignoring our emotional response, not being compassionate or caring for us. And I know that uh, for a lot of people, they're like, well, that sounds abusive. And in a way it is, it is emotional abuse in some fashions, like an emotional neglect. Um, However, I think sometimes parents are like, we got to go, like we're in the middle of something and you're throwing a tantrum. We don't have time for this. Um, And that can be hurtful too. And then we can look for other people to, to give us the compassion and understanding and support that we really needed. And so I really... I really would be curious about that. Um, and then also, I know you said you don't think you have BPD and I don't know, you'd have to get, uh, have to see a professional to be properly diagnosed, but that for anybody else out there that, you know, that didn't ask this question and is curious, um, those with borderline personality disorder can have such a, str- a struggle with attachment, feeling uh, this palpable worry for, that someone's going to abandon us. And that worry or fear of abandonment makes it so that we just want everybody really close. And then if we're worried that someone will, and we get this little inkling, this little like sense that someone might leave, then we push away first because it's easier for us to leave them than for them to leave us. Because if they left us, it could be too intense, like too painful. Um, And so I don't know, you have to be, you'd have to see a professional to see about that. But my guess would be more about your mom. And I'm not saying that she's a bad mother. Um, a lot of parents do what, you know, quote unquote, their best. Turns out their best just isn't what we needed. Um, yeah, I would, I, I'm pushing back because I don't really think, I've never, I don't really think there's another reason to be overly attached to female teachers and school staff if it doesn't have something to do with our attachment in childhood. Um, and I don't know, also just throwing this out there, there have been studies because I've been reading and I didn't include this in the book because there wasn't really a place for it. However, there have been studies um, showing that when children are in ICUs, like let's say we're preemie babies or we were a twin and we were born, usually twins are born early or, or smaller than they uh, need to be. So they keep them in like the ICU and, and incubators and things like that, depending on their size um, to get them up to size. And studies show that uh, that babies who, first of all, if they can suck their thumbs, if they're big enough and it's okay, if they don't have like tubes in their nose or things in their mouth, um, if they can suck their thumb, that they actually get bigger faster. They grow up and like get healthier faster. Um, but also there's attachment issues from not being able to be held when we're that young. You know, how the parents have to like stick their hands through those little holes with plastic and stuff to protect the child um, because maybe their immune system isn't, good enough or they're fragile or whatever, that that's actually very detrimental for our attachment too. And so I don't know if that's the case with you. Maybe that is part of it too. You could have been um, like uh, people who've been sick a lot as children and had to be in the hospital. Like I had a patient who had to have a bunch of surgeries because um, her diaphragm wasn't fully developed and she had some other issues and having to go in for those surgeries all the time when she was very, very little um really made it hard for her to feel connected to her parents and to feel soothed. And she was constantly uh, feeling like, uh, what's the, like dysregulated. And so it was trying to find ways to soothe her and calm her and help her feel cared for because she missed that nurturing when she needed it. So there's a lot of reasons in there. Um, so I'd be, I'd look back and think about it because I think that that's where it's coming from. Um and healing that and figuring it out is really where we start about what we can do about this. Cause then it's like, that's the, once we have the answer as to kind of the why, then we can do the work. Um, but if we don't have the why, we can't really help things, you know? So I would journal about this, think about it, talk about it. Um, 
maybe even ask your mom questions like, hey, when I was younger, you know, was I this way or that way or did something happen? Blah, blah, blah. You can ask those things. Um, yeah, but I, I really think that it's in there somewhere. So I'm going to give you a little pushback on that. I hope that's okay. Okay. Question number four. Hi, Katie. How do you deal with the grief that comes with losing people? Not necessarily by death. I mean, yes, sure, but also rejection, neglect, friendships drifting apart, and just people exiting our lives in general. I know that people coming and going is a part of life, but I'm always deeply affected by it. And the loss always hurts so much. It feels like being hurt by people who didn't really hurt me. Also, I guess it just feels so painful to think that I'll have to keep losing people because I always have a hard time letting them go, especially those who meant a lot to me, even if they don't know it. Also, I love and care for people so much so easily. Is that a good thing? Recently, my roommate was forced to fly back home because of family issues and I was out. So I didn't get to uh, leave a proper goodbye. I feel so sad and hollow. And if, um, and if I'm looking at my feelings charts right now, winky face, I think the word is devastated. Also regret because why out of all the days did I choose to go out that day? How do I get through multiple grieving episodes without it impacting my ability to care, love, and get close to someone ever again? Oh, and by the way, I would also feel the same grief and devastation when losing some of my things and personal belongings. Is this normal? This is interesting. And it is, it is normal to feel sad about people exiting our lives. It happens. And I've talked about grief a lot over the years about like we all honestly think of grief only when it comes to death and dying. And yes, we will grieve that. And I don't want anybody to think that I'm saying that we wouldn't grieve that. However, I believe it's much more common for us to have to grieve the dream, right? Like, uh, for instance, like back when I was, when my friends and I were applying to colleges, one of my best friends really wanted to go to NYU and getting that rejection letter was like devastating. And it was the death of that dream, right? And we had to grieve that, that that was, she thought that was going to be where she was going to end up. That was what she was going to do. And she'd put this like dream together, right? And it's very normal for us. Even um, when women try to get pregnant, when we find out we are pregnant, we start dreaming a dream of what that baby's going to be like and what they're going to do. And then if, let's say we have a miscarriage or something happens, you know, we aren't able to, to go to full term with the pregnancy. We can't keep the baby. Um, then we have the loss and the grief of that dream, as well as grieving the loss of a person. I don't want anybody to think I'm not saying that that's not, you know, that kind of grief as well, depending on what your thoughts are. However, it's still the, the, the death of a dream. And so um, that is very normal and that is okay. And we all feel it. However, with this question, um, and well, before I get into it, um, it's also the most important component of this grief is that we allow ourselves to feel it, that we validate our experience, meaning it's okay for me to feel this way. I lost someone I cared about um, and they're no longer in my life. And that's sad. Like, oh, um, I, my boyfriend and I broke up. And even though I know it was the best thing for both of us, it's still sad that I lost that person, right? We have relationships that come and go and it is sad and it does suck. And, um, and I think there's always a little part of us that like misses that person. Cause there's always a reason we're in those relationships to begin with, even if the reasons out of it are more or are greater than the reasons we were in it. We don't forget that. Like I remember the sex in the city when Carrie, um, I, they're sitting down, I think at like breakfast, you know how they always do at their diner. And she's like, if you, um, they're talking about big and Natasha being together and, um, and they say, where does the love go? Like the relationship, the love that you had in that relationship, where does the love go? And Samantha says, oh, it goes on to their next girlfriend. 
And Carrie's like, no, 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 no. The love that Big and I had is not the same love he has with Natasha and them. And so it's like, I think for a lot of us, we're like, where does that love go? Where does that connection go? And the truth is, it can still exist. It just doesn't exist with that person anymore. Just because we lose a relationship does not mean that all the love or the compassion or the understanding or the feelings go away completely. We can still love a person and not want them in our lives. Just putting that out there. I had a video a long time ago about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And that's kind of where this is at. It's like, I can appreciate what I had in that relationship and still not want them in my life. So I can still um, tap into that care and love and uh, the things that I really enjoyed about that and still be like, Meh, but it's not for me, right? Okay, get that out of the way. Allowing ourselves to feel sad and grieve and validate that is important and we will move past it. Um, but then when it comes to this person and this question, I really think that there's something in here with attachment and abandonment because even having your roommate um, having to fly home. Okay. So roommate left for a bit and I don't know if they'll come back ever, but it sounds like, you know, there was no breakup. There was no ending of a relationship. Your roommate's just not there right now. And maybe they won't come back, but that doesn't mean you can't still talk to them or see them in the future when travel becomes easier, when we feel safe to do so or whatever. You can still connect. But there's something about this like leaving that is very triggering for you and um, the caring for people so easily. And I know we just talked about attachment. I always tell you guys every week there's a theme and this week's theme seems to be attachment so far Um, because this sounds, you know how we talk about um, like people getting overly attached to certain people in their lives. Those of us who did not grow up with any boundaries or um had a, a parent or somebody who just was never around. For a lot of people, we can go into this zone of like, I don't trust anybody. I have rigid boundaries because I don't know what else to do. Also, no one's actually taken care of me over the years, so I can't trust anybody. So I don't want any relationships. We can put down that wall. A lot of us go that direction. However, just in the way that a lot of people go that way, a lot of people go the other way, which is I have no boundaries. I am super enmeshed. As soon as I meet you, I tell you my whole life story. I'm super attached. I love you so much. I'm going to tell you all these personal things about me and we overdo it. So neither extreme is healthy, by the way. I don't want anybody to think one is better or worse than the other. They're both just extremes. And the best is somewhere in the middle, which is like healthy boundaries, right? Healthy, secure attachment. We're talking about like, uh, what's the anxious avoidant? And uh, what's the other? I have to look up the attachment. Sorry, guys, you're gonna have to hold for one second. Um, There's like four attachment styles and I am forgetting all of the, here we go. Okay, so we're talking, the secure is the ideal. Then there's like the anxious avoidant. And then there is, um, oh, anxious preoccupied. That's not even correct. Anyway, um, you guys, I'm sorry. I'm not pulling John Bowlby's uh, list up quick enough and it's bothering me. But there, and I even did a, I should probably look up my own video about it. Duh, Katie. Um, however, there, there's these two extremes and it's not even important. The attachment styles aren't even that important when it comes to talking about this because we can go into that like shut down or we can go into that enmeshed, super uh, easily connected, overly connected to people. And that becomes unhealthy as well because the difference, so the one where we shut down can feel protective because we're not letting anybody in which is true, but then we're isolated and we have no relationships. So not good. On the other end, we're super vulnerable, right? Because we're putting ourselves out there all the time and we like 
are allowing people in maybe who don't deserve access to us. And that can set us up to be hurt more often, which I believe is what's happening in this question. And so um, this devastation that you're constantly feeling and the constant feeling of losing people and it being very intense, um, I would speculate has something to do with attachment and lack of boundaries. I'd be very curious about your family dynamics and whether or not, um, you know, you felt compassion and care for, or if your family, you might have family who just steps over boundaries, over shares, maybe you were a parentified child and your parent like leaned on you for like emotional support. There are all these reasons why we can find ourselves in that bucket of, I have no boundaries. Um, my, my attachment was, um, you know, insecure. Therefore I look, you know, I attach to other people really quickly because I don't really, I don't feel I don't feel secure. So I'm looking for other people to make me feel secure. Does that make sense? So for some of us, it's like more protective, better for us. We'll feel more secure if we shut everybody out. For others, we'll look for, uh, on the other end, we look for other people to help us feel secure. It's like we're reaching out for someone to soothe our system um, instead of being able to look inside and calm ourselves down like a secure attachment person would be able to do. Okay, I hope this is making sense Um, because I know it's kind of convoluted, but the intense feelings that you have about this and the fact that you do, uh, you, where is it? She says, um, you do like, oh, love and care for people so much, so easily. Is that a good thing? I don't want to say it's a, a bad thing, but I think it's something we should be curious about. In therapy, we don't ever like to say like, oh, that's, I mean, some things are unhealthy when I'm like, oh, you know, uh, you know, we're engaging in eating disorder, self-injurious behavior, alcohol and drugs, abusing alcohol and drugs. I might say like, that's not a good thing, but I'm also just curious about it. Usually we just want to know more. Has this always been the case? What is your relationship like with your parents and other members of your family? How were the boundaries in your home? Are, do you feel comfortable being able to tell someone that it's not okay for them to talk to you like that? Or that you're very disappointed and hurt that they didn't show up for you like they said. Like, how do we address situations and relationships and conflict um, by, do we feel like it's okay for us to actually have needs and wants? You know, those are things I'm very curious about um, because my speculation is that that you had no boundaries growing up. Um, potentially there was some kind of abuse, which is, you know, obviously completely someone stepping right over boundaries and hurting us. Um, and we might not, you know, we might not know how to regulate our emotions as a result. And so I think the best way to, to manage is first of all, to allow yourself to feel how you feel. And I would, I would grab, um, if you're not already in therapy, I would, I would encourage you to see someone. Um, but the, the DBT skills, especially the emotion regulation skills could be really, really beneficial for you. And that is, that helps us everything from like the story of an emotion, like learning why we feel the way we feel to like using some back burner techniques um, there are a lot of different skills in DBT that could assist you. And I really think that that could be beneficial. And, um, there is a workbook I have in my Amazon store. I think if you just go to amazon.com forward slash store forward slash Katie Morton, I think that's what it is. Um, you'll see it in there. Um, but yeah, I really, I mean, those are my thoughts about it. I think it is an attachment thing. I think we're in that position where we don't feel like we have any boundaries and we get too attached to people too quickly and it's not that that's, it's not a bad thing to trust people and love people and care for people. However, we do need to have enough evidence to support the fact that they're deserving of that. Not everyone is deserving of our care, love, and attention. Not everyone is allowed access to us. And I feel like 
maybe this person who asked the question isn't sure or doesn't know how to assess for that. And so that would be kind of the work that I would be doing with you is like trying to figure out um, how you decide who to let in and who to not let in. And if there is any, are there distinguishing characteristics? Maybe there is a hard stop, but is, is that not relative to the, to work, to the world? Like is our, our boundary like way out so that no one ever is even going to encounter it. It doesn't matter. You know, it's like way past Um, or, or what? And then like, yeah. So I'm curious, think about those things. Um, and, And the question, is this normal? It's very common. So yes, it is very normal. However, it is something that we should work on because being so deeply affected by, um, by grief constantly by people coming and going out of our lives and like your roommate having to leave. Um, it feels very emotion. It feels very dysregulating. Like, um, it feels like it's a little too frequently, a little too much, and we need to get your resilience up. So we need to have some skills and tools and ways to calm our system down. Like I was talking about like the emotion regulation skills. Um, but figuring out where it comes from will kind of give us a little more information on how to work on it. So I hope that helps. I hope that makes sense. I feel like I was kind of all over the place on that one, but what can you do? Okay. Question number five says, hi, Katie. Why do I feel like I always need to have control over everything? I panic and get super triggered and overwhelmed. Like I would cry and have actual meltdowns. Very common. When I'm unsure of something or when I forget, when I have to wait for something, when I misplace things, when I don't know things, when thing, there, um, when there's nothing I can do to help make a situation better, when things don't go as planned, et cetera, et cetera. After having the breakdown, I would usually cut or pull my hair, the latter more often. I believe I do that to numb out and distract myself from the overwhelming feelings. But could my trichotillomania or self-harm behavior have something to do with this control thing as well? 100%. How do I get over this need for control? It's been affecting my relationships. I feel that I'm starting to get controlling in relationships sometimes, feeling sad and upset when I'm not getting what I want. I'm also a huge perfectionist, of course. I don't think this has anything to do with COVID. It's probably triggering it. It's making it worse, but I don't think it caused it. In fact, I've been really enjoying all the me time I'm getting at home. Of course, you can control everything. Plus, this has been going on since before COVID. Okay, so great question. And our need to control usually stems from uh, chaos in our home environment growing up. And this could be the most common is when we have a parent who has alcohol or drug addiction, because that's a very out of control situation, right? We, um, we can feel like, because a lot of times we're young too, we don't understand what's going on. So we're like, somebody made mom or dad upset or oh, he's getting a headache again and he's going to take the, you know, drink or take the pills or whatever it is they do. Right. Um, or he's going to leave and come back and throw up or who knows, there's all sorts of chaos and we don't really understand what's happening. And so because children, when this is why I always tell parents, it's really, really important to talk to children in a real way. Like if you have a spouse or a family member who's dealing with alcoholism, call it what it is and talk to the children about it. Tell them, hey, daddy has an illness or mommy has a, an illness, um, you know, and they drink too much and that's how they try to cope with life. It has not, You haven't done anything to cause it, but this is something they're dealing with. And so we're going to try to get them help. But if they're bothering you or if they come home and you don't think they're quite right, they seem out of it, that means they're probably drinking and you have every right to just go in your room and ignore them. You know, talking to children really will help them because when children don't have all the information, we put together stories to try to make sense of it. And what do we know? We know ourselves. So we put ourselves in this story. So we're like, hey, I upset mommy or daddy or 
uh, brother so much so that they drank or did drugs or they got sick. Right. We don't make, don't even understand what it is. We, if we if they, no one's told us, we're just like something's wrong with them and they were mad or they were upset or they were sad. Right. And I did it. I must have done something because no one's told us that we didn't. So we put ourselves in the story and we say that we did it and we caused it. And so what do we try to do? We try to make everything perfect so that we don't cause, even though we can't cause, we didn't, we don't want to cause someone to, you know, abuse drugs or alcohol or abuse us. And so we we like walk on eggshells in the home um, and no one's talking about the thing. You know, it's like the elephant in the room. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger um, until you're like squeaking around the walls, trying to not talk about the bad thing and not do anything to upset the person. Um, so anyways, that's usually where this is born out of. Not always, but I'm just, I'm giving that example because it's, it's so common. I can't tell you how many times in my practice I find out that, you know, a, a older sibling, a parent, um, a grandparent who watched them or something had drug or alcohol problems. Um, and so we can, in our life, because we've been through this whole situation where we've been so perfect because we don't want to upset that person or make, make them, even though we can't make them use drugs or alcohol or abuse this. So we try to do everything just perfect. And if we keep everything under control, this won't happen anymore. Spoilers, it keeps happening. And so we go out into the world as an adult having control issues and not responding well when things are out of control. So that would be why panicking and getting super triggered and overwhelmed, like when things, when you forget, you know, when you have to wait for something, if you're running late. Um, I have had patients over the years, one of my patients years ago, her dad was an alcoholic and she got stuck in traffic getting to my appointment. And she was always super early, you guys, like half hour early, but she barely made it on time. Like she was like a minute early or maybe a minute late. And she was in full panic by then. And um, so we had to talk about this, right? So when things are out of our control, which spoilers, you guys, is like most of our life. The only thing we can control is our reaction to things. And we can control ourselves, but that only gets us so far and it can actually be detrimental. That's where eating disorder, self-injuries, behavior, trichotillomania, all these like unhealthy coping skills come in, right? Because I feel so uncomfortable. I have no tools to make myself feel less uncomfortable, right? Because all this shit is out of my control. So I can't even do anything to make myself feel better. So what do I do? I do other things to like relieve the internal stress. Self-injury, I'm sure any of you out there who engage in this know that when you do, uh, like, you know, whatever, however you do injure, when you do that, there's like a release of endorphins and a release of like those feel-good chemicals in our body. And we're like, ah, okay, right? It doesn't actually fix anything and it's very short-lived and it doesn't help us in any way. But in the moment for that brief bit, we feel a little bit better. And so we we utilize these things like uh, trichotillomania is, is part of an anxiety disorder. So it feels very calming to like pull on our hair. We find a hair that just feels a little bit different and we pull it out. Um, it's usually eyelashes, eyebrows and hair on your head. Um, it's most common. Some people pull on their arms and stuff, but that's not as common. Um, so anyways, that's why you do it because it's helping you soothe and you don't know how else to soothe. So my homework for you is to try to find ways to soothe. And the reason you're enjoying all the me time is because you can fucking control everything right now. I get that. It probably feels really good, but that's not life. And so what I would encourage you to do, and I was just talking to another member of our community earlier today about this very thing. So I want you to find the gray. So when we try to make everything just perfect, 
like everything in the house has to be perfect, I'd encourage you to just mess some things up or not fluff the pillows or fold the blankets or whatever the fuck. Leave a little bit of a mess. I'm going to do all the dishes, but one. (gasps) How crazy, right? Imagine that. Please try it. See if you can wait five minutes. See if you can wait 10 minutes. See if you can wait a whole hour. We have to find a way to live in the gray and not this extreme control. Because the thing about control for a lot of people is we swing between like being super, super, super control and then like, fuck it, I'm doing whatever I want. And the the fuck it for you might be the self-injury or the pulling your hair. Or you might not have that. You might be so tightly wound with this this uh, illusion that you have control um, and we just put all our energy into that. It's probably exhausting. I would be, and that's probably why the meltdowns, you know, I'm feeling overwhelmed. Um, so yeah, I, I would encourage you to show yourself a little compassion, maybe practice some mantras about like, the only thing I can control is my reaction. I have the, I have the ability to not do this thing. Um, and let me, I want to make sure I'm answering the question. How do I get over this need for control? Okay. So we first have to recognize what triggers it. And you, it sounds like you kind of know. So write those things down, which you've already kind of done here. So put this into a journal. Then I want you to write down an, an, like an opposite action. So if my, my initial thought is like, I misplaced something, I'm going I'm to lose my shit. What could I do instead? What would be like the complete opposite of that? It'd be, I'm like so fucking calm and no one even knows something happened, right? So we could go all the way to that. But then I want you, so once you've thought of that like complete opposite, then I want you to come to like a balanced in the middle. And I know this practice seems very tedious, but it will help us start to see that we're, we're doing this all or nothing, or we're only living in this chaos when we could have that balanced thought where it's like, you know, uh, things don't run on schedule all the time. Sometimes we run late. Sometimes we forget things. Sometimes we misplace things. Um, Sometimes we for, you know we forget information and we don't know the answer. That's life. Nothing's 100%. And so we're trying to find that middle ground so that we can live in it. And I would also encourage you to see a therapist because I have a feeling this comes from potentially something in your childhood. And I'm very suspicious of that because the control usually stems from there. Um, and it could be OCD as well. I want you also to know that this could be a component and part of OCD. It doesn't sound like it to me from this question, but I don't have the whole story. So seeing someone being properly assessed and treated should really, really help. Um, But yeah, letting yourself do things like 80% would be really healing for you. And I know it's hard, but give it a try. Can you wait five minutes before you do that thing that you feel like that chair needs to be straightened or I have to uh, do everything on my to-do list, even if I'm tired? What if you took the day off? I give you permission, take the day off. How do you feel about that? (laughs) Probably freaking out, but it's okay, right? Then we're going to try to get some of those emotion regulation skills. And let me just list some here. Um, And I don't, do I have, I don't know you guys if I have, um, if I have a, like a video about emotion regulation skills, I think I have some, but the, um, like opposite action is one of the emotion regulation skills. Like let's say, um, you know, my, my emotion is I'm, I'm angry. Then the action would be to fight, to yell, to scream or argue. Then the opposite action would be talk quietly, behave politely. Um, so 
we can kind of think about that. So when you experience like an overwhelming emotion, you can try to do the opposite action. I like to go into balanced a little bit more, but in DBT traditionally, that's what you do. And then the other, another emotion regulation skills, like check the facts. I talk about this a lot. It's like, um, what, what event triggered this emotion? So is it, I forgot something I was running late. What interpretations or assumptions am I making about this event? And this is going to be hard, but it'd be really helpful. Like maybe I'm assuming that I should do everything perfectly and that I should never mess up and that everything should always be done right on time. You know, that's an assumption interpretations, you know, there's ways that we can be seeing things that are very skewed. And then, you know, when you check checking the facts of the situation, does my emotion and intensity match the facts of the situation? Or does it just match my assumptions about the situation? I think that that's all very helpful. So give those things a try. Um, you can pick up, there's a DBT work, uh, it's like worksheets that you can do that pair well with that workbook I talked about earlier. Those are both in my Amazon uh, store. And yeah, I hope that that helps. Okay, question number six. Hi, Katie. I was at an Ariana Grande concert when there was a terrorist attack and now suffer with severe PTSD and depression from it. I'm so sorry. I was 16 at the time of the attack and now I'm 20. I haven't really had the best support system after it. My relationship with my parents is the worst and it's, it hasn't, um, the worst it has ever been. And they've made trying to heal from this a lot harder and, and said and done a lot that has made me feel super or really unsupported. It really hurts that they haven't um, been there for me at the time I needed them the most. The attack has also impacted my education massively. And I feel so lost and hopeless as I try to come to terms with the trauma while also finding some of some form of normality. Many people around me have made me feel as though I should be okay now that time has passed. But it feels like as more time passes, the worse I feel. Very common with trauma. I've had a few months of therapy, but never got to actually process the trauma due to restrictions from COVID and now have been cut off from the service that they only as they only offer a limited number of sessions with the free services here. I am unable to pay for private therapy at the moment. It's getting so hard for me to comprehend that I will never be able to go back and live a life without knowing this pain. Knowing my life will always have this experience and it makes me feel so trapped and in many ways I feel like it has become my identity, which I hate. I don't know what to do anymore. I can't stop grieving the person I was and the life I should have had. I was wondering if you could offer some insight into how to find yourself again after feeling like you've lost so much through trauma. Thank you for all you do. It really is appreciated. Of course. And I'm so sorry you had to go through this. I mean, shit, that's so stressful and terrible. Um, and the truth of, okay, so trauma therapy is best, 100%. The, the main antidote to our stress response is actually support and connection. And so the fact that your parents suck ass has made this really bad. And that's probably why it's compounding, not to mention that you don't have very good services where you live. And so there it's cut off. And so now you don't get that. So not having that, I just want you to feel validated that you have every reason to feel the way you feel because people haven't been supportive and you haven't had a good system to lean into is why this is continuing. Okay. Um, what I would encourage you to actually do is to pick up uh, the body keeps the score. It's an amazing book about trauma. It's very intensive. And some of it I'm like, it, it's hard to digest. So don't feel like you have to like rush through it or read through it really quickly or anything like that. Take your time with it. The the thing that makes it more palatable is the fact that the, um, that the author, his last name is Bessel, I think, uh, or Vanderkolk, actually, I think it's Bessel Vanderkolk. Anyway, he uh, shares stories along the way. And that those stories help me to continue reading because you're like, oh, what happened with that? And how did that turn out? And 
I think that that could really, really be beneficial for you. So you can understand a little bit about trauma and your experience and why you feel it the way that you feel. Okay. And then I'm going to tell you something and you're not going to like it, but this is the more that I read because I'm writing my own book about trauma, right? And the more that I learn about it and the more that I read about it, the more I want to recognize and let everybody else recognize the importance of exposure therapy. So something that our brain does when we're traumatized is it attaches the trauma to all the things that our senses can take in. It could be something we smell. It could be something we see. It could be a sound we hear. It could be uh, the way we touch something, right? It uses um, all of our five senses in whatever way. So like, let's say we had a, we were drinking a certain drink at that time when the trauma happened. We probably can't drink that drink anymore because it's too triggering. Not, not everybody, but some people are that way. However, the reason I bring that up is because uh, when that happens, so we have all these things around in our environment when the trauma happened that we are like, that was part of the trauma. Yeah, it was. However, that drink didn't cause the trauma, right? That perfume we smelled didn't hurt us. But our brain connects it to that and is like, oh, we can't be around that. Oh, we can't be in crowds or loud noises. I know we can't be in crowds now anyway, but just bear with me here. I can't do X, Y, Z because that's a risk. That's what our brain is telling us. And it sounds the alarm and we have flashbacks, we have PTSD responses, we're hypervigilant. Um, we can feel just so uncomfortable, overwhelmed, dysregulated, all the things, right? So we need to find ways to soothe our system. This could be through a weighted blanket. This could be through journaling, mantras. This could be taking a warm bath. This could be talking about it with someone. This could be any number of things. We have to petting an animal helps a lot of my patients. So we can find some things that soothe our system, okay? We have to do those things and practice those things. And, it, and when you have days you feel like shit, I want you to try to do those things. We can calm our system down. Then here comes the exposure therapy. Because the reason PTSD and trauma become so debilitating, we become re-traumatized all the time, is because we don't fight back against our brain and its associations with the trauma. Because it grows. So it's like a virus. It's like once we think that that smell is associated with the trauma, then anytime we smell that smell, even if it has nothing to do with a scary situation, we are flashed back into that. We have no way to soothe our system. We are traumatized again. We feel like we're back in it. And then our brain can be like, oh, any cologne that has you know similar notes to it. Oh, I don't like any of that. So then being in groups of people becomes impossible because who knows who's going to be wearing that cologne. So then we don't go out in groups of people. Now groups of people could be associated with the trauma. Do you see what I mean? It's like, there's so many ways that it can attach our trauma to all the things that are happening in our environment so much so that our life becomes very, very small and we become, become very debilitated and it's really difficult for us to function. And so we're going to have to find ways to soothe and then slowly engage with the things that are triggering. And we, we know we have to tell ourselves like, um, let's say coffee was something that was triggering for me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to smell it. Okay. No, I'm okay. I'm Okay. I'm here. Nobody's going to hurt me. Maybe I have a supportive person with me, like uh, touching my arm if that feels safe or talking to me. I don't know. I'm going to smell it again. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to drink it. You know, you go through the process, slowly exposing yourself to the thing that seems triggering, proving to our brain that it's not actually scary, that it's not actually traumatizing. It just happened to be part of that trauma narrative that's not happening now. I'm okay now. And I know it's really difficult and that's why it needs to be done with a therapist. It's, it's best. I mean, people have done it on their own. And if you can, that's awesome. But 
doing that will really help us like broaden what we can do in our life without feeling overwhelmed. Okay. So give that a try and you'll start to gain things back through your life and also grieving the person that you were before. That's okay. But I do believe we can get that person back. Trauma's taken too much from you already. We have to start reclaiming land and that's how you do it through exposure therapy. Um, yeah, it'll get there. And Body Keeps the Score, great book. Okay, question number seven. Hey, Katie, is there anything better not shared with a therapist? I've been seeing my therapist since COVID started and I feel way more comfortable with her than my last one. I shared more with her than I thought I ever could. But there's one thing I just don't know if I can bring myself to say. I'm worried she will see me differently and I'm scared that I'll be less likely to share more with her. I don't think it relates to anything we've been working on, but maybe deep down it could be contributing to something. I've never told anyone about it, but I feel like if there was anyone to share it with, she would be best. What should I do? Thanks. And you are amazing. You're amazing. Um, share it. Therapy is not a place for judgment. It's not a place for the only, I do want to tell you, um, it's not a place for holding things back. If you feel comfortable, share it. If there's a reason that it's bubbled up in your brain, you're like, maybe I should tell her about this. Therapy is that place where we get to tell someone the things that we never tell anyone else. I know it seems like scary and crazy, but I promise it's, that's why it's so helpful. It's a place we get to be us. We get to be heard and validated and understood. And man, does that feel good. So the only things that I wouldn't tell a therapist, um, or it's not even wouldn't tell a therapist. These are things that we have to report. Remember going back at the beginning, when I talked about like legal things. If we, if you have like homicidal or suicidal thoughts or, if you are abusing a child or a dependent adult, uh, those are things we have to report. Um, but other than that, you're free to, to talk about whatever you need to talk about. So I would share it. I mean, I've had patients of mine who have been abused as kids talk about how they abuse their siblings or how they maybe have, um, have felt the, had the thoughts to abuse children that they've been around. Um, and even though if it had happened, I would have to report it them telling me that, that they, that this had happened and stuff like that, that I don't have to report the thoughts. Right. And I think it's important that we are as honest as we can be with our therapist so they can help us manage that. Um, so yeah, I would tell them that the only, that, cause there's really nothing that I wouldn't share with a therapist. Again, there's those legal things. Like if you're going to go kill someone, there's the terrace off, which law, which means that I have to report it and do my best to warn the potential victim. Um, but yeah, other than that stuff, I let them know. And trust me, we've heard it all. I've always had people tell me like, oh, I thought you'd be so overwhelmed by that. Or I think that was so crazy or whatever. And I'm like, no, that's okay. Well, let's work. You know, it gives me more information and maybe it'll help her make sense of other stuff that has happened or other things you said, right? Okay. Question number eight. Hello, Katie. Recently, I have been creating false memories. I'm convinced that I've had conversations with people that apparently never happened, but it seems so real. I confuse a lot of my dreams with reality as well. It's been happening a lot and is becoming a bit confusing. Is there anything I can do to stop this? Um, depends on why this is happening. Uh, my first inkling is this is a dissociative issue. Like we're dissociating. We're having like maladaptive daydreaming. I have a video about maladaptive daydreaming if you want to uh, watch it. Uh, and the, that daydreaming gets, gets confused with reality because if you didn't know maladaptive daydreaming is very realistic, it, it's usually based in like 
regular stories. So things that could happen in your life, you have these daydreams about. So they're all very relatable and all very real. And it can be hard to know what's, what's a daydream, what's not. Um, and so it also could be, so that's one thing. It also could be part of um, trauma. I don't really know. I'm just throwing it out there. But it's something that I would have you go to see a therapist and talk about. I would let, um, and maybe even ask them if they think you need to be assessed by a neurologist just to make sure that there isn't something else going on. Because we always want to rule out what we would call like an organic cause, meaning maybe there's some kind of brain injury we have to look into, or maybe um, something else is happening and, you know, that's causing these. I don't know. It, we want to make sure that we get that all checked out. Um, maybe they want to do some like, uh, assessments with you to make sure that this isn't some other neurological condition or issue. Um, so yeah, so that, that's important. Um, and I think the, the best way to manage this, because I don't know, cause then like, I'm thinking like false memories and stuff. You're convinced you had conversations with people. I don't know if this is part of like, it, cause it doesn't sound like it's schizophrenia or like psychosis where you like uh, imagine something's happening and people are like, no, that person's not there or that didn't, you know, it's more like I thought my dream was a reality and it's not. Um, it might help for you to, to journal um, because journaling is a great way to fact check what's what happened during the day. And then maybe what your dreams are, you could journal in the evening before you go to bed and then take five minutes and journal about your dream when you wake up. And that would be a great reference point. That would probably be what I would have you try first and see if that kind of nips it in the bud. And if it gets like this from, it stops us from continuing um, cause that does sound super confusing. And so we have to figure out, excuse me, had to burp, um, figure out where that was coming from. So give that a try, see if that keeps it, you know, from continuing to happen, but the creating false memories, I do want to recognize that it does happen a lot when it comes into trauma where we're trying to piece together things and repressed memories can be really difficult. And so that's why it's important to have some fact checkers, like people who were there, with us when things happened or knew us around that time. And we had talked to them about it. Um, that can be really, really helpful. Um, in making sure that it is true and it is, that is what happened. Um, so I want to address that just in case that was anybody else's question as well. Okay. Question number nine. Hi, Katie. When is the line crossed between being helpful to your parents and being a parentified child? As a daughter of immigrant parents, I'm often told to make calls regarding insurance or internet and complete a lot of adult responsibilities since my parents could not speak English. Yes, a lot of my friends have had to do this as well. I also had a speech impediment and my parents would get frustrated with me and discipline me for it, which in turn caused me to have a slow or have low self-worth. I felt a lot of pressure and useless when I couldn't get things done. I was more mature for my age and my parents needed help as they didn't have any, had, didn't have many other options. They tried their best and I don't blame them, but I'm just curious if children of immigrant parents could be considered parentified for helping their parents accommodate um, in a new country. Thank you in advance. I love your videos. This is interesting. I still have a girlfriend that does this for her parents because, um, in a lot of ways, I, I think they play helpless too because they do. They both speak English enough. To, and also, we're in Los Angeles. Almost everywhere you call or do, you push two for. They speak Spanish, so they push two for Spanish, and they could get someone who speaks Spanish. Um, like even if you call nine one one, you can push two for Spanish, or you know, call the police department two for. It's always we have that option, and so I would, um, I would encourage you to to. Uh, to see if that's an option when you, when you do call to do certain things, or if you're checking things, um, 
I would ask them if there are forms in whatever language your parents speak, um, because I think that that could get you off the hook for that. Um, and it's tricky. So, okay. I'm just want I want to answer this question like as clearly as possible. When is the line crossed between being helpful to your parents and being a parentified child? Being a parentified child means that we're never allowed to do the things that other children do because we're so busy being overly responsible. Meaning, um, just like you're saying, you have to do all of the adult things for them. Now, if this is just form filling out and making calls, I don't really see that as parentification. I see that as like a language barrier and you're assisting them. And I would, I do think that immigrant children um, whose parents don't speak the language and don't, uh, that my frustration lies with my patients who deal with this because I have a, a teenager whose parents were doing this to her too. Um, my frustration lies when they don't attempt to learn the language um, because that would make them self-sufficient and that's the goal. Um, and so that's where the boundary has to be like laid where it's like you have to try to learn. I mean, I know you're like 80 year old grandma maybe won't learn, but like your 50 year old parents should. Um, because they need to be able to, you know, they're in a different country that does, that has English as the main language. They should learn it so they can do things, right? So they're not so dependent on you. Um, however, parentification is usually when we do all the things a parent has to do. And it's not like a hundred percent, but I'm just saying that like parents aren't cooking, aren't, aren't, um, making sure that we, that the bills are paid. We're having to do all of those things. And we're emotionally there for our parents, meaning our parents treat us like their friend, not their child. Um, and that's when the lines get very complicated and very unhealthy as well. Um, <clears throat> it sounds like you did have to be overly responsible. So I would say that you were parentified in that respect. However, it was more just because I'm not saying that you weren't parentified. I'm saying, yes, you were. However, it's not so much of the emotional component where your parents overshare about things that you shouldn't know about and you shouldn't have to deal with. Um, and I don't know if you felt like you got a chance to be a child. Um, but I do think children of immigrant parents who don't speak the language of the place that they move to um, would be at a higher likelihood for being parentified because they tend to be the one that speaks for the whole family. Like, um, like one of my friends I was talking about, she has to do everything for them and she's the one that speaks for them and has to go to all their doctor's appointments and all sorts of stuff. And recently she has stopped because they've been in the States forever. You guys like forever and ever. Um, and they, they do speak enough. They should, you know, and also there's interpreters and people speak Spanish everywhere here. It feels like. So um, she has stopped doing that because it was getting so, difficult for her to have her own life. And so that's where the we have to try to learn boundaries. We have to try to recognize what we can do and what we're not going to do. And our parents should start trying to learn English so that they can advocate for themselves um, because you can't be there all the time. And so um, I think in a lot of ways you were. Uh, okay, blame them. I just want to make sure I'm answering your question all the way. <clears throat> yeah, I think the line is Helping a parent is when for for a while your assistance in certain things like, is this the right word? Am I answering this correctly? I would want them to try to fill things out and then you do the like spot check. That would be the next step. Like we have to like wean them off of this um, because the line between being helpful to a parent is, are they still acting like parents or not? Are we the parent? Are we being having to parent them? Are they emotionally trying to lean on us? Are they leaning on us for, for all things that they're supposed to do? If not, I would say that it's not necessarily parentification. It's like they needed your assistance because they didn't speak English. Um, but the fact that it kind of stole from your childhood, I believe, is, is, is part of part of parentification for this particular person who asked the question. Um, I hope that that's clear. It's, it's not like a, a hard line in the sand, but it's like when, it, when you don't get to be a kid 
and they they lean on you for all sorts of random things like emotional support and um uh having you doing all the things that a regular parent would do like paying bills like maybe you have to work so that you can pay the bills or you have to make meals for you and the family you have to do the laundry and the dishes and it's not that kids can't do um chores but it's like no one's gonna do them if you don't you have to keep the family going you don't get to do the things your friends get to do and be a kid and go run out maybe and play baseball or soccer or join the band or be in art class, whatever, be in theater because you have to go home because you have shit to do. That's not right. That's when it is, uh, it's uh, too much. It's parentification. Okay. Question number 10. Hey, Katie, I'm thinking about reporting my father for the sexual abuse in my childhood because I'm afraid he might abuse other children too. Now that I got to know, uh, now that I know he's dating women that have young children, I never, um, yeah, because I'm afraid that they might abuse someone there. I never wanted to report him before because I just don't want to ever see him again. And I'm afraid of how it will affect the rest of my family. Nobody knows about the abuse. And also, I don't feel like the bits I remember are enough for a police uh, report or court. I haven't ever been able to talk about it with my therapist because of dissociation. I know it would be the right thing to do. And I want to because I can't bear the feeling that it's my fault if he abuses the other children. It's never the victim's fault. Get that out of your head. I don't like victim blaming like that. I know that they say that a lot. And yes, we can save other it from happening to other people, but it, this person's a dirtbag. It's their fault, okay? Um, but I'm afraid no one will believe me and it will affect my relationship with my family. Do you have any advice? So, okay, there's a lot to this. And I want you all to know that if you feel well enough, I always encourage people to report because these dirtbags need to be punished. That's really it. These are garbage humans. I want to punch them in the face. I'd gladly tar and feather the bastards. I think they're they're just horrible people. Um, so if you feel well enough, I encourage you to report. However, I want you all to know, and I've kind of talked about this before, maybe it's just on, in Patreon live streams, but the, the process is very difficult and very stressful and horrible. It needs to be completely overhauled, but our legal system is just a fucking mess in general. And across this, I've talked to other community members in Canada and in the UK, um, and Australia, and I know that they're all very similar that's not everywhere in the world, but I'm just telling you, I think everywhere it kind of sucks. Okay. I'm just telling you up front because I want you to know the truth. Most of the time they will, um, they will assign you like a, a therapist of sorts. I don't know if they're actually a licensed therapist, but they could just be like a crisis counselor. Um, they're trained to help you go through this process. Not everyone gets these, but I know they have them in the States. They have them in Canada. It kind of depends on where you're at. Um, and what you have accessible to you, but you can always ask for for one of these people. Or if your therapist, if you can afford to, or if you have access to, you can ask your therapist to come along with you and do these things too, if, they, if they'll do that. Um, so there are some options there. I'm just telling you, but I forget what they're called. They're like, I think here they're called like a safe, a safe assistant. I don't forget you guys. I'm sorry, but you can just ask like, are there any is there anybody that can help me with this? It's like, a, you know, counselor or someone to support me during this process. They'll, they'll know what you're asking for um, if they have it. Okay. So they, they offer you that. And they, the thing that I want you all to, to be aware of is they make you repeat what happened to you like over and over and over. First, they do it for the police report. Then they make you do it usually for like a follow-up thing. And then you'd have to do it in court. And then they have you do it like they, they prep you for like, actually prep you for course. So you have to do it a bunch of times then. Then you go to court. It's, it's really, really hard. And because you haven't been able to talk about it with your therapist yet because of dissociation, 
I know that it's going to be hard and it's not impossible. And I think that talking about it or at least telling someone would be, would be helpful and could prevent someone else from being abused. Um, but I just want you to know that that's the process. And then it's up to the court system, right? Whether or not they want to prosecute, whether or not, um, there's enough evidence or whatever. If, if the, if it goes to a jury, do do they uh, convict him or not? I don't know. I've even had people in our community talk about how their families have been on the, uh, have taken the stand like for the abuser. So you just never know because families can be really, really dysfunctional and really uh, terrible during times like this. So that's the information that I have. That's the process. We have to file the police report. They have to accept it. There's going to be follow-up interviews. We'll have to prep for court, all that stuff. Okay. Just, just to prepare you. Um, And you, you will have to see them in court because at least in the States, they have the right to, to, um, confront their accuser, I think is how they verbalize it. So it's like they have the right to see, I don't know. It's all fucked up. I hate the shit. I think it's terrible. It needs to be overhauled, but I'm just telling you what I know. So when it comes to this, just letting, like calling CPS. So the way that I think you can do this, um, is to call uh, child protective services or whatever it's called, wherever you live and telling them what happened as much as you can to say, Hey, I was sexually abused by my father when I was a kid. And I just found out that he's dating women that have young children. And I just, I just needed to tell someone, but the thing that they're going to need from you and the thing they're going to ask, cause I can't tell you how many times, unfortunately I've had to call child protective services back in the day, um, is they're going to need to know your father's name, uh, where he lives, uh, his phone number, if you have it, uh, the, the address of where the woman, the woman with the children live their names, phone numbers, address, if you have it, all this stuff, like you're going to need all that stuff because when they send a, a social worker out to check it out um, or to talk to the woman or whatever, they need to know where to go, right? So, so the addresses are really important and the phone numbers are really important. And the names are really important. So I think you could call it in. That would be my recommendation is to call it in there with that information. Um, that way you don't have to, I mean, you're not taking him to court then. You're just, you're letting CPS do their thing. You're letting them um, evaluate the situation. Oftentimes they'll remove the children from the home if they, you know, if they suspect it or they'll, while they do an assessment or they'll often, if he's dating women, um, the women might just break up with him. You know, you don't know. So that might protect people as well. Um, But those are kind of two avenues that you can go through. And I think the CPS reporting is a little bit less, less intensive. And your therapist can actually help you do that, by the way. Um, because if a therapist knows that someone's abusive and um, we're actually mandated to report. So if you told your therapist about this, they would have to report it. Um, but if they, ha- you have to have enough information again, you need to know who these people are, the names, um, where they live, stuff like that. Um, yeah, I hope that helps. I, it's, it's a sucky system. I wish it was better. I'm so sorry, but get yourself an advocate. Most of them have some kind of advocate program. Um, it's almost like my sorority, we used to, uh, put all, give all our money to CASA, the court appointed special advocates. And that was for children going through things in the court system. They'd have an advocate that was just on their side for them. Um, and so that, that can assist children, but I know that there's one for like older, older people reporting, uh, abuse or rape or assault, things like that. They have people to help. And yeah. And then the being afraid that no one will believe you or affect the relationship with your family. If you don't want to go through the court system, like you said, you can just do the, the, the child protective services route and that might save you that. 
Um, but honestly, in my, in my, from my perspective, if your family doesn't believe you and thinks that this is something that you would enjoy doing, they're not really worth having around. Um, the fact that you're like still trying to deal with it and process it in therapy, you didn't make this up and it could affect the relationship, but I just, I think that they would just feel sad about it and, and hate that like a mother, if I was your mother, I'd hate that I didn't know that was happening. A lot of times people have no idea. Um, and that can be really hard and they might have their own guilt about it, but hopefully it, they'll still be in your life and everything. And it, you know, you get to come, maybe talk about it. Maybe it happened to other people that you grew up with too, like other members of your family. Nobody knows. Um, but yeah, I hope that that kind of gives you my thoughts on it. And I'm sorry that happened. Okay. Final question. Question number 11. Hey, Katie, I would really like to have your opinion on this. How can people, especially therapists, because they're always against suicide in my experience, not understand that death can sometimes be a rational decision that should be accepted? Hmm. How come that after years of suffering, constantly trying to get better medication, therapy, other treatments, etc., a person isn't allowed to quit? This is about physical and mental illnesses. How many years does someone have to suffer to try everything possible to be allowed to say that life is not worth it anymore? Life can get better for many, but some of the, uh, but for some, the chronic and lifelong torment without hope is just reality. Shouldn't those people be able to decide whether to end their lives without judgment? I'm sorry if this sounds like I'm attacking you or pro-life people. It doesn't. I don't want to attack anybody. I just want some fairness, understanding, and discussion about this topic because it really bothers me the way that it is. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about this and a lot of mixed feelings because even though we talk, I talked about this, I think as the last podcast that mental illnesses are chronic, but they're, they are manageable. So when it comes to mental illness, for a lot of people, I mean, I don't want to say all, but for, for people, I believe it gets better. And a lot of times I believe that our mental illness has taken away our ability to have any hope or to see any possibility doesn't mean it's not there. It's like impairing our judgment. And that's why when the first question about like, um, not understand that death can sometimes be a rational decision. I don't believe that we're very rational when we're mentally ill and we're, we're like in the depths of it. Now, when it comes to chronic illness and things like that, like, um, I read, what was that book? It was like me before you, it was part of my book club, like a year ago, um, maybe two years ago, time flies. Um, but I, I personally have mixed feelings about it. I don't, I'm not really pro or I'm not for or against it. I under, I think every situation is different and I understand, um, people not, not wanting their life to continue after like a horrific accident where let's say they're paralyzed from the waist down or the neck down. I don't know. I, I, it's someone else's life and I don't want to weigh in on that. But when it comes to mental illness, because I know that things can get better, um, and I know that they do get better. And I've seen patients who've been chronically severely depressed and suicidal for like 10 years, finally get the right treatment or finally um, see a glimmer of hope and be thankful that they didn't take their own life. That makes it really difficult for me to think that we are in a position to make a rational decision. And you can disagree with me. This is, this is, a, this is something that should be debated and should be discussed because it, it affects a lot of people, right? And I think a lot of people feel very uh, judged and like there aren't options and no one likes to feel trapped. Um, but I really do feel like uh, 
the thing about mental illnesses is it skews our perception and, and impairs our judgment. And so it makes it impossible for us to be able to take in, like, for instance, a lot of my patients who've been traumatized, like I'm talking about our limbic system is firing, which means our entire wise mind, all of our frontal uh, lobe and the stuff that helps us be more thoughtful, uh, organized, planning, have goal oriented behavior. It doesn't allow for any of that. It's like impulsive, safety based, um, you know, stress responses and they're quick and they it, like it doesn't allow us to think through things. And for many of my depressed patients and my traumatized patients, but also my anxious patients, like a lot of my patients live in that brain a lot. And that makes it impossible again for us to make rational decisions, even though it feels like we are, we don't have access to that part of our brain. And so I really think that um, trying different treatments and shifting things, I know I've had a lot of people tell me like, but I've been on so many medications and they'll name off like 15 medications. And I'm like, well, how long were you on just one of those medications? Because in order to have a full trial of something before saying it doesn't work, I'm not saying this is your fault. I'm saying this is your physician's fault, whoever prescribed this they should leave you on that for at least two months for you to see if it's any benefit to you. Obviously, if you have horrific side effects, take you off of that. But that can't be the case with everything. And I find that doctors change and add medications too quickly and don't allow us to make sure that that's working. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm just having a conversation and a discussion. And I think these are things that we should be able to talk about. And so there, I don't really have like an answer to this. Um, I have thoughts about it because there's no answer, Right. How many years does someone have to suffer? Who am I to say? I'm not that person. But I do I do know when it comes to mental illness that it gets better. And we often just have subpar care or waited so long to get care at all that it's going to take our brain a while to heal from what it's what's happening. Like it takes a while to calm our limbic system down and for our frontal, prefrontal cortex to come back online. And we're like, oh, I can think clearly now. You know, I feel a little bit safer. Maybe we need intensive treatment. I can't tell you how beneficial inpatient treatment. I know in the States, we we're very fortunate. Inpatient treatment is not always hospitalization. That can mean that we go into like a, a home and we get, you know, 24 seven care and we have therapy all day, group therapy, individual, we see a doctor like that, that sort of treatment, that uh, really hand holding, caring treatment heals so many people. I can't tell you. And so because I've seen people so desperate, so, feeling so horrible for so long, then feel better and feel great and go on to live lovely and fulfilling lives. That's what makes it really difficult for me to say, oh, sometimes it can be a rational decision. It should be accepted. You should allow people to make that choice. And I'm like, I just don't know if they're able to. I don't know if we have the capacity when we're so deep in it. I'll even be honest when I'm super stressed out or even if I haven't eaten in a while, I am not really making the best decisions for myself. I not really thinking clearly and I can be really impulsive and I don't, I just would hate for someone to make an impulsive decisions that is so serious like that. So those are my thoughts. Um, I understand that it bothers you. I'm open to people talking about this in the comments as long as no one's, I don't want any yelling. I don't want any name calling. I don't want any, you're wrong. I'm right. People have different perspectives and that's okay. And it's something that we should be open to discussing. And maybe there should be laws that are changed. I know in other countries, Things are different, um, you know, It I understand. Uh, so yeah, I'm open to continue to talk about it, but those are my thoughts. That's the last, last question. I guess I should have probably tried to end on like maybe a happier note, but 
Um, today is going to be a better day. You guys, that's what I tell myself. Cause I, like I was saying, I had a shitty time earlier. I think it's my first week back, I guess from vacation is maybe why also COVID sucks and things just suck and it's been hard. Um, but today's a new day and I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to eat my lunch. I'm going to do my yoga and I'm going to feel better. And you can too. So just take some action today to, to do something positive for yourself because our brain and body will thank us. Am I right? Have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you for listening. Oh, and if you're new, don't forget. Um, also, welcome. My name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Probably should have said this at the beginning. However, I asked for the questions on the community tab of the YouTube channel that this podcast uh, lives on. Obviously, if you're listening to it, you'll have to go to youtube.com uh, forward slash opinions that don't matter. That's the YouTube channel. And then in the community tab there on Mondays, I ask for your questions. So you can ask them there. I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. If yours didn't get the most thumbs up this time, you know, you can always ask it again. There's no limit to the amount of times you can ask a question. Hopefully it will get picked. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next week. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.